way, bad news first. This place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification, which we can't fake, and vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below, which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now, once we get down the shaft, though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well, Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after, it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment. And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. So he had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those. And he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed, the metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now, and the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The Metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. 
I had already gone to get a new license and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. <laughs> and that's so true, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all, and uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had, a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 Plus 2 the one in the movie, and he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, uphills, downhills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was, and I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it, and it was many years later, um, almost two decades later, that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels. It had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C. My buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike. Straight around 495, around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar, so I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem? Well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot. And I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. <laughs> Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story. Nate Scott's story. Here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. OurAmericanNetwork.org That's OurAmericanNetwork.org
And we continue with our American stories. And you're about to hear now a story from Dr. Catherine Lopez. And we're bringing you these stories for quite a bit now because periodically we like to delve into the area of of storytelling that affects you where you live and what's going on in important parts of your life. Like many young and upcoming doctors in America, Dr. Kat found herself facing burnout after working endless hours, pushing pills, seeing over 20 patients per day in 15-minute increments or less. Residency did not fulfill her passion for healing or put to good use her top-notch talents. Let's take a listen. Um, I was really afraid of going to residency because I had heard of the abuse that I would undergo. Um, And even though my residency program in family medicine was overall a great and supportive program, I came to feel during my first year of training that the medicine that I was practicing was simply a training to become a robot doctor. It was to be able to see patients as fast as possible as we were given shorter and shorter time slots in clinic. And it was to learn how to both prescribe and manage a polypharmacy of drugs as efficiently as possible and with the least amount of litigious risk. And this was never the type of healing that I signed up to learn. And I was deeply hungering to learn about nutritional healing of disease, nutritional prevention of disease, alternative approaches, including mind-body medicine, Chinese medicine. What about these things people have been using for centuries? I grew more and more bored and more and more desperate to start to live my passion and my dream of becoming the doctor that I knew could do great things in the world. And my residency program was not able to educate me in that way. So I actually resigned from my residency program after the first year. I announced about halfway through and completed my intern year in my family medicine program. All told, you know, from the beginning of residency until I started to, until I found my dream where I live now, um, just an absolute emotional turmoil from feeling like a total failure, a total screw up, feeling like my genius was absolutely unappreciated and unimportant, that all these passions I had for real health and real healing were useless at best and dangerous at worst, um, that were causing me to become a problem to my residency program and a problem to the conventional medical system in general. Um, I was in absolute grief and despair over thinking that I could never be the healer I was meant to be. I started looking at other educational programs and thought, what could I do other than um, work with under my medical license if I can't get my medical license? I considered things like selling my soul to the pharmaceutical rep industry and taking a job there so I could be paid to drive around and sell devices or pharmaceutical medications. Um, And then through meeting Dr. Pamela Weibel, who is a liberator of physicians from treadmill medicine, I started to realize that I have all of the emotional intelligence, the educational prowess, the passion and the drive to truly live my personal dream. So what I ended up creating in my life was a beautiful collaborative practice where I met an experienced mentor in naturopathic and Chinese medicine, Dr. Satya Ambrose. She had just opened a new wellness center in Happy Valley, Oregon, which is about half an hour outside of Portland, where I lived at the time. 
And she became a close mentor and teacher of mine. And over the past two years, I've essentially developed my personal private practice as an independent contractor in a group of really forward-thinking, loving, relaxed, interesting people with diverse um, capabilities of healing from acupuncture to body work to naturopathy. And um, as an independent practitioner, work on a percent split basis to enjoy the benefits of the wellness center staff. I have my own staff. I have assistants. Um, I have front office scheduling and website maintenance and these kinds of things. Um, in addition, I've gotten to essentially grow into a functional medicine approach to diagnosing and treating both complex chronic disease and simply prevention medicine for the people who are feeling kind of crappy in their 50s and maybe 30 pounds overweight and need a little bit of guidance to kind of get healthy in this second phase of their life. Um, I not only, as my own boss, have all of the ability to dictate my schedule, um, how much money I really want to make, how to go into my community as a grassroots marketer of myself, whereby interacting as a teacher, a lecturer, a demonstrator, a colleague, I am basically marketing my group and myself as the community-based wellness type of physician that I truly am. So marketing feels effortless. Attracting patients has felt completely effortless. And over the course of two years, my practice is filling beautifully with basically no effort on my own other than personally following my passion to learn um, the functional and natural medicine approach to complex chronic disease. So currently I work as an out-of-network doctor and I have a scale for my cash pay patients, many of whom are uninsured. I give discounts for various things like for people who have Medicare and I also have um, a biller in my office who will bill uh, people's insurance if they have out-of-network benefits for our office visits. Um, the care that I'm able to provide absolutely fills me and my patients with joy. And learning along this process has been so empowering and liberating from the do medical school, do a residency, and get a job. One of these jobs that you're offered on a piece of paper sent to you in the mail at a big box clinic. I knew that that job wasn't for me. It wasn't harnessing my genius and I could not express my personal passion for health and wellness through that model. And guess what? I'm not a quick doctor. I would never have succeeded in anyone's model that requires me to see people in 10 to 20 minutes. Just never. So fortunately, I get to succeed as my own boss in my own practice with a beautiful group of collaborative naturopaths who were helping each other and see our patients together to do an awesome, awesome brand of um, really true healing. I want to summarize for you that I was hopeless, totally discouraged, very, very bored by the type of treadmill medicine I was being trained in and exhausted physically from lack of sleep. I was undernourished and filling up on more junky sort of calorie dense stuff so I could make it through the day while shoving as little volume down my mouth in the bathroom stall as I could so I could not pass out on rounds. Really, really suffering in the system that is designed to disempower very intelligent people and wring every bit of productivity out of you as deeply as possible, no matter the personal price. And now, 
as my own boss, having been supported by other doctors to realize that I can figure all this out on my own, just like the dry cleaner business down the street can take money from satisfied clients to do their business, gosh darn it, I can learn how to do the same thing in medicine. I roll into work at nine or 10 or 11 or 12, depending on the day. I set my own schedule. I can block off days for any of the things I would like or need to do, educational purposes, recreational purposes. And in my clinic itself, our staff juices for us, green juice every day. I can wander around between patients with a quick acupuncture treatment. Um, if I drop something on the floor, I don't feel like I have drug-resistant bacteria everywhere, but can like wash it off and put it back on the table where I was eating. It's a clean, wholesome environment that I just never thought would be possible. Medical students come through from the naturopathic school and practice their massage and craniosacral work on me. So I truly am living in a wellness center where we practice what we preach and I had no clue it could be this good. Just two years after quitting my residency, I'm truly living my dream. I have enough and the horizon is only growing brighter. And you've been listening to Dr. Kat and that's Dr. Catherine Lopez, her story here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear a similar story about Dr. Ken Cooper, my doctor, and one of the heroes of American medicine. And not because he was a surgeon, and not because he invented a drug, but he founded the modern aerobics movement and the modern health movement. And he did it first as a doctor to astronauts, and he discovered that they were living longer and better lives because of sustained, hard aerobic activity. Started the Cooper Clinic, and the rest was history. His patients, and there are tens and thousands of them, live at least 10 years longer on average than the traditional population and have large reductions in health disease, in cancer, and even Alzheimer's. And better living and lower medical costs is what's been the result of his remarkable health care career as a doctor. Dr. Kat's story, Dr. Catherine Lopez's story, here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And all week this week, we're celebrating the U.S. Constitution on September 17th, 1787. Our founders signed the document, and it became our one and only and longest-lasting constitution on the planet Earth. And it is a beautiful document and worth celebrating and knowing. And all week long, we've been hearing from some of the titans of constitutional law, storytelling, and the like. And today we're hearing from one of the great minds, one of the great people that one could ever know, Antonin Scalia. He was nominated and appointed by President Ronald Reagan in 1986. He was an associate justice on the Supreme Court 
From 1986 to 2016, he died on February 13, 2016. And by the way, Justice Elena Kagan, who was nominated by Barack Obama, called him one of the most important Supreme Court justices ever, and also one of the greatest. And the thing about Scalia is he loved to teach. He loved to go around the country talking to students anywhere he could find them, high schools, colleges, law schools, even seminaries, and even the U.S. Senate, where he ended up one day, in the end, teaching and schooling U.S. senators about the Constitution and what makes it great. And in this particular clip, this story you're about to hear, Scalia explains what he has to deal with and what he tries to teach when talking to young student groups around the country. Let's take a listen. When, when I speak to these groups, the first point I, I make, I, I ask them, what do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in, in our Constitution that, that, that makes us what we are? And I guarantee you that the response I will get, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if, if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. <laughs> the Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course, just words on paper, what, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. So the, the real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. There are very few countries in the world, for example, that, that have a bicameral legislature. Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate. It's honorific. Italy has a Senate. It's honorific. Very few countries have two separate bodies in the legislature equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world 
have a, a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers. A and when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about is independence of the judiciary. Because the Europeans don't even try to divide the, the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries, the chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and the, and, and the, the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When, when there's a disagreement, they just kick him out. They have a no-confidence vote, a new election, and they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at this system and they say, well, it passes one house, it doesn't pass the other house, sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party, it passes both, and then this president who has a veto power vetoes it, and they look at this and they say, uh, it, is, it is gridlock. And, and I, I hear Americans saying this nowadays, and there's a lot of it going around. They, they talk about a dysfunctional government be, be, because there's disagreement. And, 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 they, and the framers would have said, yes, that's exactly the way we set it up. We, we wanted this to be power, uh, contradicting power, because the main, uh, the main ill that beset us, as, as Hamilton said in, in The Federalist, when he talked about a separate Senate. He said, yes, it seems inconvenient, but inasmuch as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation, it won't be so bad. This is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. <laughs> so uh, uh, unless Americans can appreciate that and learn, learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection. If, if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair, it doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into, into, this, into this complex system. So Americans should, uh, should appreciate that, and, and they should learn to love the gridlock. It's, it's there for a reason, so that the legislation that gets out will, will be good legislation. And what a profound thing to talk about. And by the way, when you think about all the separation of powers and how difficult it is to get a bill through both houses, the House and the Senate, and again, the Senate gets six years, so they're elected differently, and not all at once in the House, that every two years, everybody is up for re-election. And the founders did that on purpose. And we need to know these things, because there's a reason why we are the country we are. By the way, the other dispersal of power that's fundamental to understanding the Constitution is this thing called federalism. And that is simply this, that the federal government, well, it was not in charge. That all of the power, not specifically enumerated in the Constitution, was retained by the states. And we did that to keep power close to home with people we trust, with people we know, people we could just go and visit at our local state legislatures. And so you were listening to Justice Scalia, and by the way, Dr. Larry Arn, that is on the website. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's the president of Hillsdale College. And what an hour and a half we spent with him. We also have Thomas Paine on the website. You hear from Common Sense. And why? Because Dr. Arn said without that pamphlet, without that writing from Thomas Paine, George Washington said there would not have been a constitution, let alone a declaration of independence and a revolutionary war. 
So all of it we're doing for you here on Our American Stories, the story of our Constitution, the story of our great country, and all of it is brought to us by and sponsored by Stetson Family Office. And the Stetson Family Office believes that it is important for young people to know the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. And you can go to www.constitutioncurriculum.org to learn more. That's www.constitutioncurriculum.org. And as always, go to hillsdale.edu too. Their Constitution 101 course in this week in which we're celebrating the Constitution. Sit down and watch it. It's free and by some of the best teachers you'll ever see. I went to a great law school, folks, at the University of Virginia, and I learned more sitting in on a couple of Dr. Orange classes than in three years at UVA. The story of America, the story of our Constitution and our founders continues here, Constitution Week, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories about everything and all walks of American life. And this story is the story of a comedian, and we've told a few before. Stephen Wright is most famous for his slow, deadpan one-liners. Born and raised in Massachusetts, he cites comic George Carlin as his main influence. His 1985 comedy album, I Have a Pony, was recorded at Wolfgang's in San Francisco and Park West in Chicago. Thanks. I used to be a parking attendant in Boston at Logan Airport. I parked jets. They let me go, though, because I kept locking the keys in them. One day I was on an 86-foot stepladder trying to get in the window with a coat hanger. <laughs> I was arrested today for scalping low numbers at the deli. <laughs> Sold a number three for 28 bucks. <laughs> I was once walking through the forest alone and a tree fell right in front of me and I didn't hear it. I used to be a narrator for bad mimes. I live in a house that's on the median strip of a highway. Very nice grassy area, I like it. The only thing I don't like about it is when I leave my driveway, I have to be going 60 miles an hour. I have a microwave fireplace. I can lay down in front of the fire for the evening in eight minutes. Well, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? If sometimes you can't hear me, it's because sometimes I'm in parentheses.
there any questions? I'm feeling kind of hyper. About four years ago, I was... No, it was yesterday. I went to the hardware store, I bought some used paint. in the shape of a house. I also bought some batteries, but they weren't included. So I had to buy them again. I had trouble going home from there because I had parked my car in a tow-away zone. When I came back, the entire area was gone. time the police stopped me for speeding and they said, don't you know the speed limit is 55 miles an hour? I said, yeah, I know, but I wasn't going to be out that long. Before we get back to this legendary comedy routine, let's hear from Stephen about his writing style. The audience doesn't care about style or anything. They just care whether it's funny because I was... You know, I, I had more normalish material. Eighty percent of it was like what I'm known now. But even within that, they would, if they would laugh at some of it and wouldn't laugh at other things. So they, it wasn't how I was doing it. It was the actual piece of material. And I, I just thought abstractly. That's just how I wrote. I didn't think a, a plan. I mean, that that type of material was just funny to me. I didn't think about how I talked. I didn't think about how I looked. I didn't think about anything. All I thought about was material. So then when I went on stage, I was scared because public speaking, I was so nervous and I had an extra blank face because I was afraid. And I was trying to say the joke the right way and trying to think of what was the next joke. It's very serious to communicate stuff to the audience. And then that just like went together, kind of meshed, like just by accident. Wright knew from a young age that he wanted to be a stand-up comedian when he would often dream about performing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Well, I started watching it. I was like 14 years old. I was watching it every night, and my fantasy became to, to go on that when I was like 17. It was like, that would be, you know how a kid wants to be a baseball player or an astronaut or something? I wanted to... That was my dream, not knowing that it would ever happen or anything. So then I'm in the club and stuff, and a guy from The Tonight Show saw me in Cambridge, Peter LaSalle. I was doing it three years, and he saw me in the club, and then three weeks later I was on the show. So I'm 26, and I'm there. It was totally surrealistic. He was really nice. He talked to me before I went on. He was very... You know, I, he could have been saying, we're going to ax murder you and we're going to put your body in different states after the show. And I would have said, yes, that's, that's fine. That's fantastic. And so, you know, that's still a highlight of my entire career. I've done stuff after that, but that's my favorite thing ever. Now let's go back to Stephen Wright's first comedy album, I Have a Pony. I went to court for a parking ticket. I pleaded insanity. <laughs> I said, Your Honor, why would anyone in their right mind park in the passing lane? 
Then I asked him if he knew what time it is, and he told me, and I said no for the questions. <laughs> going to court next week. I've been selected for jury duty. It's kind of an insane case. 6,000 ants dressed up as rice and robbed the Chinese restaurant. I don't think they did it. I know a few of them and they wouldn't do anything like that. Years ago, I worked in a natural organic health food store in Seattle, Washington. One day, a man walked in and he said, if I melt dry ice, can I swim without getting wet? <laughs> Two days later, I was fired for eating cotton candy and drinking straight Bosco on the job. I figured I'd leave the area because I had no ties there anyway except for this girl I was seeing we had conflicting attitudes I really wasn't into meditation she really wasn't into being alive <laughs> I told her I knew when I was going to die because my birth certificate has an expiration date on it photograph on my license taken out of focus on purpose. So when the police do stop me, they go, here, you can go. One night I stayed up all night playing poker with tarot cards. I got a full house and four people died. telescope on the peephole on my door so I can see who's at the door for 200 miles. <laughs> Who is it? Who is it going to be when you get here? I got an answering machine for my phone now when I'm not home and someone calls me up, they hear a recording of a busy signal. My husband's supposed to get seven years bad luck, but my lawyer thinks he can get me five. <laughs> I like to skate on the other side of the ice. I like to reminisce with people I don't know. Granted, it takes longer. I like to fill my tub up with water, then turn the shower on and act like I'm in a submarine that's been hit. And I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day, because that means it's going to be up all night.
And that's the work of Stephen Wright. We celebrate his work, his life here on Our American Stories. We've all also done the same for Steve Martin, Don Rickles, Cal Burnett, Lucille Ball, Mitch Hedberg, and Joan Rivers. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to what we did with all of them. You'll hear some of their routines. You'll hear from them personally about how they do what they do. Stephen Wright, his material, his story here on Our American Stories. with our American stories. And now it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And the Wall Street Journal isn't just for business readers, folks. It's America's Journal. Pick it up. And once again, we're going to hear from their regular contributor and our resident doctor on the show, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And here's Dr. Ely sharing his moving story, What I Learned from a dying patient. I had a patient recently whose death was particularly harrowing. 39 years old. Ph.D., scientist, brilliant. She was sent to the ICU team as a fascinoma, meaning a person with a constellation of problems the doctors couldn't figure out. This woman had been physically fine until two months earlier, and now she was growing progressively short of breath, had a little blood in her urine, and had pain in her toes, which were turning blue and red in the cold. Imaging showed that she had a growth on her aortic valve and that sections of her kidneys were dying. The doctors at the outside hospital had diagnosed her with blood clots in her lungs and started her on a blood thinner, but her condition kept worsening. As the day progressed, we started all the needed tests and interventions to help sleuth out the problems and fix them. Hours into my periodic conversations with her and her mother and sister, her mother mentioned that my patient was agnostic. I realized that up to that point, perhaps because of the sheer rapidity of the way things were unfolding, I had neglected to take a spiritual history. Since I teach medical students and residents in physical diagnosis class about the importance of taking a spiritual history, you'd think that I wouldn't fall prey to this oversight, but I had. The literature shows that most patients want to be asked about their spiritual beliefs or non-beliefs, and that many think it rude if healthcare professionals don't consider this important aspect of their well-being. The question should be asked out of respect and in a non-judgmental manner. Thus I said to her, 
Do you have any spiritual values that you want me to know about that might influence your medical decisions? We'll get to her answer in a minute. Within 24 hours of our meeting, the patient had been checked with an array of blood tests and imaging studies. And there it was. The biopsy showed angry cells with too much nuclear size for healthy cytoplasm and prominent nucleoli. Cancer. It was everywhere then. It became a whirlwind because she got shorter of breath by the hour as the cancer and fluid literally filled up her lungs. We went from her arrival in the hope of figuring out what was wrong and seeking a cure, talking about how when she got back to her lab and students, she'd resume where she'd left off, to the depths of despair. The patient's conversations with her sister were difficult, to say the least, and at times they both got weak. Eventually, they affirmed that they had to pave a way to prevent my patient's further suffering. With her mother, however, it was much worse. She looked at me through tears and fear and screamed, This is not fair! Over and over, her sister began printing off her will from an iPad and having things notarized. It was surreal. I won't forget my patient's look of shock and surprise, as if she'd heard me wrong. When I told her that the cells we'd seen under the microscope were cancerous and that the cancer had already spread throughout her body, only eight hours after we'd told her that she had this incurable illness and that our hope, which at the time seemed plausible, was to get her off the ventilator so she could talk to her family, she stopped breathing and died quietly without any apparent awareness of suffering. Throughout the day, I had tried to be diligent about ensuring that she was able to spend time with her mother and sister. The initial challenge was to use a specific approach towards sedation that balanced her comfort and her clarity of mind so that she could really engage with the family. My last memory of this young scientist is that of her breathing, unconscious and unaware of her surroundings. At this point, she was newly comatose on the sedation and painkillers as we removed the breathing tube and ventilator. I urged her family, nevertheless, tell her what you want her to know. It helps families to have no regrets in the days that follow. The story is many things, and to you it no doubt means something different than it does to me. As this woman's physician, I find that one of the most enduring aspects of the story was the palpable oneness I felt with her, and in knowing how in sync we were with everything, body and mind. There was an unusually tight connection, and I sensed that we both knew it. Since antiquity, the greats such as Plato and Aristotle have taught us the concept of body, mind, and spirit as the fullness of existence, a triad still embraced by many today. My patient and I were in tune after talking about those first two, and then when I took her spiritual history, she perceived that our beliefs diverged. She affirmed what her mother had told me, yes, I'm agnostic, and it's okay that we differ on that. I nodded and was left to wonder how and why, without having talked about this earlier, she had both understood that we differed in this third piece of the triad and thought it important to offer me reassurance. An autopsy will answer many things, like what was growing on her heart valve and the source of her cancer, which we think was bowel, pancreatic, or ovarian. But no physical finding, microscopic sighting, or laboratory test is going to help me learn any more about her spiritual side. I remember her loving manner and her inquisitiveness about life. I know that she was thinking of her estranged father, her students, 
and her nieces whom she'd never see again. She wasn't sure about the existence of the divine, but her courage, daring to face what was happening despite not wanting to hear the worst possible news, utterly confirmed the human spirit. She revealed the connectedness we have in all of our imperfect, vulnerable lives, and I can still feel it now. And again, that's Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He writes often for the Wall Street Journal and contributes here at Our American Stories, beautiful stories like that. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. continue here with Our American Stories, and it's time for our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Koch Industries. More than 67,000 people across America are employed by Koch, and there's a good chance that their work intersects with your own story in some way. The great folks at Koch make products that help improve medical devices, consumer electronics, vehicle safety, fabrics for clothing, filtration for clean water, and innovations for popular household brands. In the process, they're creating jobs and opening paths to opportunity for everyone to create their own American story. Learn more about Coke's incredible work at CokeIndustries.com. That's CokeIndustries.com, K-O-C-H. And here's Joey Cortez with today's story. The classes I teach, I tell the kids all the time, I say, hey, here's the thing. If you're tired and you need to sleep, like sleep in my class. If you got to take a call, take a call in my class. Like, my job as a teacher and as an educator is to make you not want to do that. My job is to make you, if you're tired, is to wake you up. We're not going to take your phones. My job as an educator is to capture your attention every day. And if I'm not doing that, then I guess I'm doing something wrong. Because kids are going to be kids. And if you can provide something of value to them every day, then I think, I think they appreciate that. I think they love doing it. You're listening to one of the most inspiring educators in America, Zach Cleaver. I teach at Campus High School in Hayesville, Kansas. Been here 10 years. I teach a variety of business classes. Now I'm the head of the business department here. Whenever I started, I taught YEK. Youth Entrepreneurs of Kansas, which was founded by Charles and Liz Koch of Koch Industries to help prepare children for success in the workplace and in life. It is now in 26 states and is known as YE, Youth Entrepreneurs. I've had so many kids go through my program and benefit from it, and they would not have these opportunities if not for YEK. I've been, I've been to other schools that have just an entrepreneurship program, and it is nothing compared to what the opportunities that our kids have here. So I had some awesome kids one day, and we would always talk about hypothetical business. Like, if you were going to start a business in the school, what would it be? And one day, one of my YEK kids said, you know, Cleaver, you always talk about, you know, don't deal in hypotheticals. Deal in now. Deal in, you know, deal in what you can do. You know, take advantage of situations. Show value. And he said, why don't we just start a business at the school? And I said, all right. 
People in Hayesville love, we don't actually have a coffee shop in Hayesville. We have a McDonald's. Students used to drive actually probably about 15 minutes to a Starbucks to go get coffee in the morning. And they would come back to school and be late. You'd always see kids walking in and at the tardy desk and they'd all have Starbucks drinks. And so the students thought, why not bring the coffee to them? I got 20 YAK kids together and they actually wrote the business plan for the coffee shop, pitched it to our school board, got a $50,000 loan to start it, and it's been running for five years, and it generates around $45,000 a year in sales. We have people from the community come in a lot, and we have people from other schools come in, and we actually saw a decrease by 20% in tardiness whenever we added the coffee shop. And we're saving kids money. Our drinks are not near expensive. We do a lot of things. You know, we don't have the overhead that other people have. And then the best part is we get around $15,000 a year to charitable things in school. So they're actually giving back to their community in school for kids. You know, it's amazing. So it is an incredible story of how kids, you know, took what they learned in YAK, wrote a business plan, pitched it, did all that, and accomplished something awesome that now is, you know, a staple of campus high school. The kids started this coffee shop, worked there, and made money. But now what? What would they do with that money? One thing we talked about in our business department was kids need financial literacy and they're just not getting it. And we, you know, kids are intimidated by banks. Kids are intimidated to go into a bank and open a checking account or open a savings account. I mean, and if you think about it, if you, you know, if you didn't get walking with your parents, I told kids, I said, I walked in with my parents and started one. So I probably would have been intimidated as well. Like, I don't know how, you know, I don't know how that works. And so we talked to a local bank, a Valley State Bank here in uh, Wichita, and they were big supporters of campus high school. And I, you know, we pitched our idea. We said, hey, you know, we have a, we have a student-ran coffee shop. What we want to do is we want to literally put a bank in our school, a bank branch. I don't want it to be false or anything. I want it to be an actual bank branch. And I want kids to be the interns that run it. And I want them to take the exact test that your guys take. And after that, you know, after they're done with us, they should be able to go get a job with you guys. And so we set up a program that they are legitimate bank tellers. And we currently, right now, we have around 500 student accounts. So 500 kids who would not have probably a bank account have set up an account. And it is a safe, free account. So it costs, you know, you have to have $1 to set it up and your student ID. There's no overdrafts. So kids feel safe about it. You know, parents feel safe about it. It's a great learning experience. And then our kids, our bank tellers, actually go around and teach financial literacy to other kids, mostly freshmen and sophomores, about why you want to save, why you want to do this, you know. And then we actually teach some seniors and juniors about uh, interest rate loans and credit cards and student loans. So whenever they leave high school, hopefully they're a little more prepared. And then last thing about the bank, the coolest part is these kids, so we've had, this will be our third year, so we have had 24 uh, interns, right? Every intern that has wanted to get a job in a bank in college or after has got that job. So we have 18 kids. 18 of our interns right now are actually working in a bank part-time or full-time. And one of them is actually a bank manager, which is amazing. So, I mean, it, it is a truly amazing program that has impacted our student lives at Campus High School especially, but are also, you know, around the nation. And then Zach would have an opportunity to help another group of people in need of skills training. Prison reform, especially in education, 
we've been discussing it for a while and I've heard lots of people discussing it from the top of YEK, even in Coke Industries and even in other businesses. And it's something I've been really passionate about. My family, I've never uh, had a direct experience with that, but I've seen it affect a lot of my friends and a lot of my students. I've always wondered what impact I could have on it. And sure enough, the opportunity came about that YEK talked to me one day and said, hey, we're thinking about having a teacher go into the El Dorado Detention Center and, you know, start teaching YEK. And so they kind of opened it up and there wasn't a lot of volunteers. And so I think I was the only one that actually said, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I want to do it. So I think that's how it really uh, began. They house, they house everybody. I mean, convicted felons. They have people that are, are lifers, so people that are not going to get out of prison. Mass murders are there. Uh, BTK's there. He's a serial killer from Wichita. And the security is way up. I mean, there's three levels of fences. Each one of them has crazy barbed wire. They're touch sensitive, so if they get touched, it sends off a sensor. There's armed guards and towers. Like, it is, it is an intimidating experience. There is actually a training that they send you to that all volunteers have to go through, and it's pretty intense. I mean, they do not sugarcoat it at all. And you're talking to you know people that have seen all aspects of that prison, the good and the bad. They're telling you how much of an impact you can have positively, but they're also warning you about what can go what can go wrong. You know, sexual assault's a big one. You're dealing with people that haven't you know had human touch and intimacy in a long time and that lots of things get wound up and it's not only sexual assault with each other it's sexual assault against other people and people that come in and so that was that was one big thing is like you can't be alone you know you don't want to ever be alone and so you always want to be within eye contact with 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 one of the guards they walked me around they showed me the whole prison they showed me where these guys stay their commons area and again there was not a lot of person-to-person interaction that I was seeing there's a lot of people sitting by themselves. There's a lot of people reading. There's a lot of people sitting in there in their cells. So I think that in prison, if you don't have a passion for something, if you don't have something that drives you and something that you can actually internally focus on, I feel like it's a very, very lonely, monotonous, hard place to survive and to come out at the end and be able to be a productive member of society. I met one of the students beforehand, and he actually worked in the prison library. He asked me so many questions that first day whenever I met him. I've probably met him in a 12-minute period, and I bet he asked me 200 questions about what the class was going to be. So I knew how excited he was, and you could tell how excited he was. And in my head, I was thinking, wow, if all 12 of these guys are as excited as he is, this class is going to be fantastic. Because in high school... Yes, kids are really excited to take my classes, but at the same point, some kids are not very excited to go to school. So some kids view school as a chore. These guys were viewing this class as an opportunity. And we've been listening to Zach Cleaver, and this is our Opportunity America series brought to us by the great folks at Coke Industries. And when we return, more with Zach and more with a story you can copy in a school district near you. This is Our American Story.
And we continue with our American stories and our Opportunity America series brought to us by the great folks at Coke Industries. And now we return to a remarkable teacher, Zach Cleaver, and his story. I had to drive 45 minutes to get to the El Dorado prison. And so the drive there, you know, you start running through all the stuff in your head of that they talked about, you know, in your training. And I think I called my wife probably three or four times uh, on the way there and was like, you know, I don't know if I can do this. She's like, you can do this. You're a good teacher. You want to do this. That was the main thing. You know, you have the best intentions. You you can do this. I pulled into the prison. I got out of my car, and I'm, I'm not going to lie, I threw up because I was so nervous. I threw up. I looked at the prison, and I said, all right, well, let's go do this. And the, the first, you know, you're telling these, you know, you're trying to be social, you're trying to be nice. I, I met one of the inmates beforehand, one of the inmates that I would be teaching, and nice guy, so that was that was good, and, you know, very interested, very willing to take the class. They told me how much demand was in the class, so I knew the guys wanted to be there. And so the first day, I looked at the prison guard, and I said, hey, I know we talked about the fact that we cannot actually touch the inmates, and that that is a major prison rule. I said, I really, really think it would be beneficial if I shook their hands whenever they come in. I do, I do that with my students. You do that whenever you greet people. I said, I really like to do that. And he said, all right, I mean, he said, you can you can try. And so the first inmate comes up and I hold out my hand and this guy looked at me like I, you know, had, you know, poison in my hand. And he kind of looked at the prison guard and the guard said, yeah, you can shake his hand. And I shook his hand and it, I've never shaken someone's hand to where they looked like they actually appreciated it. And this man did. And I think it made the class run 10 times smoother because one, it humanized me and they knew that I wasn't there just for whatever reason. I wasn't there just because the prison wanted me to be there. I was there because I genuinely wanted to be there and I wasn't going to judge them. And I don't think they've had a lot of human interaction like that, positive human interaction. And for us to start off the day on that note, really set the tone for the class and for the next four weeks. For basically the first couple weeks, we do a lot of talking about value. Uh, what value do you have? What value do we have in others? Uh, the next couple weeks is we do a lot of networking. How do you work with one another? How do you work with people? How do you meet people? How do you greet people? What value can you bring? How do you show people what value you can create? Then we really start to delve into passion. What passion do you have? You know, if what passion do you have in business? What passion do you have in life? And so that's where the kind of the Shark Tank pitch comes. Normally in a high school environment, we have them write a business plan and then they pitch it. So they actually go through, they find their passion, they write the plan, and then they pitch it to a panel of judges in Shark Tank fashion. They have limited resources. So the research was very hard. So we had to go based off of like either what they knew, what I knew, or what the prison guards knew. That was kind of harder, but it still, I think, was ultra productive. So what we did instead was we had them make trifolds and we had them make, if you could start any business today, what business would you start? And unlike whenever we do with high schools where I'm like, okay, you need to research your target area. You need to research the demographics and stuff like that. It was more based off of them. What passions do you have? What do you know? Like, what do you like to do? And the trifolds were amazing. They put so much effort into these trifolds. The prison guards let them take it back to their cells, which is a big, big thing and work on it. So I came back the following week and these try, uh, I mean, just pure shock. I was like, wow, guys, this is, this is amazing. The passion and the effort that they put into these trifolds and into the thought 
of their business and what they want to do, you could tell they have spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I feel like they were just wanting someone to ask them, hey, what do you like to do? They thought about things that they are really good at that I would never know. So Carlos, the guy that is going to be in prison the rest of his life, been in since 1987, does bead work. And it's awesome. I mean, it is amazing, amazing bead work. And so he actually brought out some stuff that he has done that's in his cell and had it kind of on his trifold. And the other prisoners were in shock. They were like, man, I had no idea you could do this. And I said, this is amazing quality. Like, I've seen what they sell on the outside, and this is up there in quality. Have you ever thought about selling it in prison? And he said, no, I've never thought about that. Because, I mean, they are allowed to sell stuff that they make. They're allowed to sell artwork and that type of stuff. Hopefully, that's that's worked out for him, and he's doing that. One of, one of our biggest success stories, I will say this, is one guy that has gotten out of prison. He wanted to start his own auto body shop. That, that was his goal. He had a huge passion for cars. He told us his background. He said, the only thing I remember from my dad is that he taught me about cars. And he said that he was not a good dad. He was abusive, didn't bring in a lot of money, but he knew about cars. And that's what he taught me. And that's where we kind of bonded was he would tell me how to fix cars. And so his big thing was, I want to eventually own my own auto body shop. Our YE staff came through and were like, hey, we actually know some people that own an auto mechanic shop. And we're like, you seem like you're really knowledgeable. Let us know whenever you're out. I think that gave him this hope and maybe gave him this passion to get through the rest of his sentence is that he can get out of prison, do what he still loves and do what he knows and be a productive member of society. It sounds like he's doing fantastic. He is actually right now he's out of prison and working at an auto body shop. Zach stopped teaching at El Dorado to return to campus high school. At the time, it was only a summer program, but of course, he has since wondered if his work at El Dorado has made an impact. I have gone back and looked, just because I'm that guy. I have gone back and looked just to see if anybody who has gotten out is back in there, and I'm, I'm happy to say they haven't yet. So that, that, I think that's the best testimonial, is that they're not back in prison. Now back at Campus High School, Zach's time at El Dorado has made a profound impact on his teaching. This is what you kind of go through at a so lower socioeconomic school is, you know, it does impact a lot of these kids. And I think unless you actually have experienced the prison system and seen it, the empathy you're showing is for that kid, but not necessarily for the parent and the family and what you now know, you know, what I now know that they're going through, it makes me 10 times more empathetic because I used to see it as a prisoner makes a bad decision that impacts them. Now I see that it not only impacts them, it impacts their family immediately and it's gonna impact their family whenever they get out. If they don't get out, it impacts them 10 years down the road. And I think it just has opened my eyes to the fact that if, if a kid's struggling, if a kid's having trouble, and that could be, uh, uh, you know, it is a viable reason. It is hard. And so I, I think it has opened my eyes to that. Teaching, it makes you feel like what you're doing is gonna impact the world. I think every person can reach back to a teacher that treated them fantastic and changed them for life. I can think of my teachers and how they've impacted me, and I'm hoping that one day, hopefully if I do my job right, my kids are the same way, and they say, Mr. Cleaver had a great impact on my life, and this is why my life turned out the way it did. 
And great job on that, Joey. And what a story. What a teacher. And that's Zach Cleaver. And this is a part of our Opportunity America series. And by the way, to start a YE program at your school, go to getye.org. That's getye.org. And maybe start a coffee shop with some of your kids at the local school. It's such a great idea. I run my kids to McDonald's all the time, and it's true. The line's too long, and the next thing you know, she's late to class. And I'm out three and a half bucks on a cafe macho something or another. And what a great opportunity to teach all of our kids, at-risk, middle-class, upper-middle-class, all of them, the value of work and the value of a dollar. And by the way, the work that Zach did in prisons, what a beautiful thing. And we know what Coke Industries has done with regard to prison reform in this great country. And so many things are happening in a bipartisan way on this issue. One of the beautiful things coming out of our country's politics is Republicans and Democrats coming together on something as important as prison reform. Zach Cleaver's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And to understand the Constitution, to understand the Declaration of Independence, well, George Washington said it best, without Thomas Paine's common sense, there's no revolution. If there's no revolution, there's no Declaration of Independence, and there's no Constitution, there's none of it. And Paine wrote common sense in January of 1776, and by April, it had sold 120,000 copies And back then, there were only 3 million or so Americans. So imagine what kind of a bestseller that was and how many books he would have sold today with 300 million-plus Americans. So let's dig right into this remarkable piece of writing, this pamphlet. Payne started off with a sort of a disclaimer. Let's take a listen. Perhaps the sentiments contained in the following pages are not yet sufficiently fashionable to procure them general favor. A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right, and raises at first a formidable outcry in defense of custom. But the tumult soon subsides. Time makes more converts than reason. As a long and violent abuse of power is generally the means of calling the right of it in question, and in matters too which might never have been thought of, had not the sufferers been aggravated into the inquiry, and as the King of England hath undertaken in his own right to support the Parliament in what he calls theirs, and as the good people of this country are grievously oppressed by the combination, they have an undoubted privilege to inquire into the pretensions of both, and equally to reject the usurpation of either. 
In the following sheets the author hath studiously avoided everything which is personal among ourselves. Compliments as well as censure to individuals make no part thereof. The wise and the worthy need not the triumph of a pamphlet, and those whose sentiments are injudicious or unfriendly will cease of themselves unless too much pains are bestowed upon their conversion. Here's Payne now talking down loyalists to the crown. The prejudice of Englishmen in favor of their own government of king, lords, and commons arises as much or more from national pride than reason. Individuals are undoubtedly safer in England than in some other countries, but the will of the king is as much the law of the land in Britain as in France, with this difference, that instead of proceeding directly from his mouth, it is handed to the people under the more formidable shape of an act of Parliament, for the fate of Charles I hath only made kings more subtle, not more just. Wherefore, laying aside all national pride and prejudice in favor of modes and forms, the plain truth is that it is wholly owing to the constitution of the people, and not to the constitution of the government, that the crown is not as oppressive in England as in Turkey. An inquiry into the constitutional errors in the English form of government is at this time highly necessary, for as we are never in proper condition of doing justice to others while we continue under the influence of some leading partiality, so neither are we capable of doing it to ourselves while we remain fettered by an obstinate prejudice and as a man who is attached to a prostitute is unfitted to choose or judge a wife so any prepossession in favour of a rotten constitution of government will disable us from discerning a good one and what writing and here he is now thomas paine in common sense talking down the entire notion of monarchy in the early ages of the world according to the scripture chronology there were no kings the consequence of which was there were no wars. It is the pride of kings which throw mankind into confusion. Holland, without a king, hath enjoyed more peace for this last century than any of the monarchical governments in Europe. Antiquity favors the same remark, for the quiet and rural lives of the first patriarchs have a happy something in them which vanishes away when we come to the history of Jewish royalty. Government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was the most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. The heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings, and the Christian world hath improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to the worm! who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Here thou is pain rallying the troops and the cause of revolution. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age, posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. 
Now is the seed-time of continental union, faith, and honor. The least fracture now will be like a name engraved with the point of a pin on the tender rind of a young oak. The wound will enlarge with the tree, and posterity read it in full-grown characters. And here Paine continues to rally the American people. O oh, ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny but the tyrant, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. O oh, receive the fugitive! and prepare in time an asylum from mankind. And here Thomas Paine makes the case for independence. However strange it may appear to some, or however unwilling they may be to think so, matters not. But many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence, some of which are First, it is the custom of nations, when any two are at war, for some other powers, not engaged in the quarrel, to step in as mediators, and bring about the preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Great Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her mediation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on for ever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach and strengthening the connection between Britain and America, because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences. Thirdly, while we profess ourselves the subjects of Britain, we must, in the eye of foreign nations, be considered as rebels. The present is somewhat dangerous to their peace for men to be in arms under the name of subjects. We, on the spot, can solve the paradox, but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, were a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts, setting forth the miseries we have endured and the peaceable methods we have ineffectually used for redress, declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we had been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her, at the same time assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition towards them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them, such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were freighted with petitions to Britain. Under our present denomination of British subjects we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us, and will be so, until, by an independence, we take rank with other nations. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, but like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, 
and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. And what words? They still resonate today, folks, all these centuries later. And the fights we have in this country are very similar. They're actually very, very similar. Who decides who pays sovereignty, the individual and the state, and power in the end? Thomas Paine, Common Sense, and we play that for you because without it, as George Washington reminded people, there would be no Constitution. We're celebrating Constitution Week all week this year. In 1787, our founders signed the Constitution in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this week, we are doing everything we can to remind folks of those times. And thank you to the Stetson Family Office for sponsoring this week of storytelling. And all week long, well, all week long, you're getting a lesson from the very best in the business, a storytelling from the very best in this world. And constitutioncurriculum.org, www.constitutioncurriculum.org is where you can go to find Essentials in Education and Stetson Family Office materials for homeschoolers, for public schools, for the family, the very best educational materials for teaching our nation's constitutional literacy here on Our American Stories, the story of the American Constitution. Constitution.